Who cares? Uh, it doesn't really mean anything to us, okay? Uh, so when we get to Hosea, though, who, who is he? Well, he is uh, the author, most likely. It's every commentary I read that he, he wrote this book. He's a prophet of Israel. Uh, he was a prophet of Israel for about 30 to 40 years. Um, the Talmud, it's an extra biblical Jewish writing, mentions actually Hosea quite a bit, that he was uh, held in high regard as a great prophet of Israel. Uh, but, but this is his only mention, is in this book. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, anywhere else in, in the scriptures. Uh, and so we, we know this <clears throat> about the Bible, that we have what are called the 12 minor prophets, and we have a couple, uh, four, mate, four major prophets. Three, four. Okay, <laughs> this is why I get paid the big bucks to do this. There's four, there's four major prophets, but it doesn't mean that the major prophets are more important or they're better prophets. Uh, it just means they wrote more, that their books are longer than the minor prophets, okay? So that, that's all that that, that that means. Hosea, though, uh, in, in the Jewish canon, in the Jewish Bible, uh, they had uh, these 12, they was just called the 12, these 12 minor prophets called the 12, and it was kind of written all just on one big scroll uh, that was called the 12. Uh, and they're, they're, our Bible is not in chron chronological order, that if you, if you were to read from Genesis to Revelation, especially when you get into the judges and the kings, and then you get to, it's all kind of crazy. Uh, there are Bibles or you can find a reading plan if you wanted to read the Bible in chronological order. To me, that it helps my brain to kind of get everything in order. Uh, and so if, if we were to do it in our Bible, it starts with Hosea of the 12, uh, but he actually would have been, it would have been Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, and then Hosea. So that's that. He's also a prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is somebody who says, thus saith the Lord. Uh, prophets were not liked uh, by the people of Israel. A lot of them got killed uh, by their own people. Uh, but they had a prophetic word, meaning they're speaking on behalf of God. I just said, I'm gonna say this and I'm speaking as if God himself were saying it. And, and if what I say doesn't come true or if it's false, then you have the right to kill me and you should kill me. False prophets are bad. And so when somebody says, thus saith the Lord, people say, oh, we should listen to them. And then they don't like what they say and they kill them anyways. All right, so that's what a prophet is. Let me read um, a, a quote here from uh, Andrew, uh, just that he's uh, a commentary on, on Hosea. Although the term prophet is not used to identify Hosea, that word, it doesn't ever say the prophet Hosea. He is described as the recipient of the Lord's word, which indicates his prophetic status. The Hebrew term deber, uh, is singular and indicates in communication. It is not, of course, of course, everyone knows this, a literal reference to a single word. I don't know what he's talking about there, but three other books begin exactly the same way. Okay, this is where it, what's important. The word of Yahweh, the word of God came to so-and-so, namely Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, furthermore, with minor variation of the phrase in Ezekiel, Jonah, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. Okay, so, so he's a prophet. So even though he's not like, hey, I am a prophet, the fact that he's speaking, thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. I think it's used three times in these two verses. The Lord said, the word of the Lord came. Okay, he's a prophet. It's very important. Now, let's get into the brief history of Israel slash Judah. If you don't like history, sorry, turn, turn it off, take a little nap, wake back up in five minutes. Uh, but to me, this is fascinating uh, because to me, those verses that we just read um, may not make a whole lot of sense. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read just verse one again there. 
the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel. What's that? Is that important? Yeah, it kind of is. So what I want to do is just walk through the history of Israel. And I mean, like, by, by walk, I mean, we're going to sprint real fast. There's a guy named Abraham. Okay, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. Now, you have Abraham who's called. Most likely, he's at the Tower of Babel. Uh, God could diffuses, confuses the languages, and he meets up with his clan, and God says, I want you to leave them. I want you to go out and follow me. And Abraham's like, okay, cool. I'm going to follow this voice that I don't really know much about. There's no Bible. There's no scripture written down. And he does. And it's counted to him as righteousness. So you have Abraham who has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons where we get our 12 tribes of Israel, uh, which we'll, we'll see in just a little bit. But the big one that we talk about is Joseph. Joseph then is sold to slavery into Egypt. He rises in power. But for 400 years, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And then at the tail end of that is when we get to Moses. Now Moses is born, he rises up, he becomes a leader and he leads them out of Israel over to Canaan. They get to this land, which is now current, even currently now, modern day Israel. He leads them through the wilderness, gets to Israel, gets to Canaan and says, this is it. And the people are like, yeah, I don't think so. God, he didn't really prove himself back there when he got us out. So I don't really believe that he can do it here and they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. They come back finally to Canaan after that first original uh, generation that died off. They come back. Moses isn't allowed into the Canaan, into the promised land for things that he did while he was in the wilderness. And they're led into Canaan by Joshua. And these are then the 12 tribes. And so I know this map is hard to see. It doesn't really matter, but you can see there's different chunks. There's 12 different chunks of these nations of Israel. Think of them as states or city states or whatever it is you want to do. And so you have these 12 tribes uh, that are split up over there. And they were just kind of all independent. There was no unifying factor uh, for hundreds of years uh, that if you read the book of Judges, that's what happens in this time period, that you have someone who rises up, says, hey, you all need to repent uh, or I need to kick out the Assyrians or the Philistines, or I need to, we're gonna fight, we're gonna go to war. But there's not really any unifying thing that, that is happening. And so they go through all the judges and they finally say, I'm sick of this. We don't wanna be like this anymore. We want a king like all the other nations. And God has warned them, you don't want a king, kings are bad. Kings will turn you away from me. He's gonna enslave your sons and your daughters. And he's gonna, he's gonna bring in new kings and or he's gonna bring in new gods. And, and just everything about it is warning, don't do it, don't do it. And they're like, no, God, yeah, we, we want a king. And so we, that's where we get King Saul. And under King Saul, you have now a unified kingdom. Uh, Saul does some things that he's commanded not to do as a king. He does some prophet things, some priestly things that he had no business doing that he knew he shouldn't have done. And he loses the job. The Holy Spirit leaves Saul and then King David. And this painting there, Saul is just relaxing, you know, sipping on, on some juice uh, of the vine. And, and then you've got David, King David there, uh, who's playing the harp. And there were stories where Saul had really bad um, uh, some, some kind of either headaches or some kind of mental disease. And, uh, and David would soothe him by playing the harp. David is anointed and then Saul tries to kill David lots of times. It's really bad. But then David becomes king. And this is the, the golden era of Israel. David is this awesome king. And then he uh, ends up having an affair with Bathsheba, Bathsheba. And they have their son, Solomon. Solomon builds this temple. 
Solomon's temple. It's this beautiful, I mean, you, you read the, the stories and just the description of this temple. Not only was it huge uh, for that time, but it was just gold. Everything was, was gold, everything, or bronze outside, but everything on the inside was just pure gold. And uh, is this beautiful structure. Well, Solomon does exactly what God said was gonna happen. Uh, he forces people into labor to build this. He hikes up taxes big time to be able to pay for this temple. Um, and so isn't the greatest leader, but he's very wise as we know. And yet he ends up having 700 plus wives and, and they are from different nations uh, and they bring their gods and, and they're like, hey, you know, Yahweh's cool, but what about my God? You don't love me as much as all these other 699 wives? All right, cool, we'll build the temple with your God in it too. And that's what happens. And so it just becomes this chaotic time period with all these different gods, although the temple's here. And, they, and they've always wanted to build the temple. David wanted to build the temple. God was like, not you. It's not gonna be you, it's gonna be your son. Well, after Solomon dies, he leaves the kingdom that is one kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. And this is where we're gonna pick up the story, all right, in Hosea. So Rehoboam is now king over Israel, but when he gets there, there's a letter that's written from 10 tribes in the north that say, hey, the, kid, the, the temple's built, quit taxing us, send our kids home, we're done. The temple's built, what do you need us for? So he goes and he seeks some advice and he goes to the old wise men that had been uh, advisors to his father. And they say, yeah, you should probably let, let them do what they wanna do and they'll follow you for the rest of your life. And then he goes to his buddies and they say, what should I do? And of course they say, yeah, I keep the taxes. Are you kidding me? Like we get to live like Solomon. We get to live like kings because of all this. We don't have to do anything. And this is then the description that Rehoboam gives to the tribes in the North in 1 Kings chapter 12, says this in verse 10, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. <laughs> okay, that didn't go well. All right, revolt, okay? They're like, yeah, no thanks, we're out. We're no longer part of this nation. We want out. And so it splits, it splits into two. And so to the south, you have Judah. Uh, and this is where Rehoboam is king. Uh, we're gonna, if you, again, it's really hard to see, but uh, Jerusalem is gonna be there. It's the capital. Uh, that's where the temple is. And so uh, Jeroboam, or sorry, Rehoboam, we'll get to Jeroboam. Rehoboam is king of Judah. It's just like, I mean, you couldn't just come up with two different names. We gotta have Rehoboam and Jeroboam because that's not confusing. Uh, so, so if I do that again, I apologize. So Rehoboam is king in Judah in the southern kingdom. And there's two tribes. Uh, that was Judah, that was the big one. And then Simeon was kind of encircled by Judah. So they probably didn't even have a choice to revolt even if they wanted to. And then you've got Israel, that's called Israel to the north, which are the 12, or the, sorry, the 10 northern tribes. All right, so that is that. Now with that context, oh yeah. So then in the northern tribe, the Jeroboam becomes king. And he was one of the major sons of Solomon, uh, of, and there was a prophecy that this kid was gonna become uh, king of Israel, not any descendant of, of Rehoboam. So you've got Jeroboam in the north in Israel, Rehoboam in the south in Judah. So now let me read the text again with that history in mind. And let's see if any of this means anything differently to you now. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, 
son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right, so he lists a bunch of different kings that were now, now we know Judah is the southern kingdom, right? Where Rehoboam started. So Rehoboam's not listed because he didn't last long. No kings of Judah or Israel lasted long. Think uh, pre-Rome Caesars. It was the same thing that there was a king and then he would have a, a, a major in the military and then they would kill the king and then they would just say, hey, I could be the king and they would stay in king, right? Sounds like Caesar. It just, it just happened over and over and over and it's exactly what happens in Israel and in Judah. So there's this long line. So that's Judah. And during the reign of Jeroboam, that's now the Northern kingdom, son of Jehoash, that was one of the military leaders with Solomon, king of Israel. So that's Israel, that's the Northern kingdom. So this is really important because in this book, God, Yahweh is gonna speak of Israel and he's speaking of the Northern kingdom because he's also gonna reference Judah, right? Because normally when we think Israel, we just think all of Israel, but there's a distinction that's being made in this book between the Northern kingdom of Israel and the Southern kingdom of Judah. They're both gonna be mentioned, not necessarily in this uh, passage. So this this is really important. And if there ever is a time where God mentions all of Israel, I'll definitely be sure to try to differentiate that, but that doesn't happen today. All right, now, now we get to the fun part. Okay, now you can wake back up, boring stuff's over. We're gonna walk through this text. Before we uh, get, to the, get back to the text though, there's a, there's a thing uh, that we see in scripture that's called prophetic performance art. And what this is, is that someone, a prophet, will do something. This is where I was getting at with the logo. The logo means something more than just an image. And that's exactly what happens, that God tells people, mainly prophets, I want you to go do this thing, but it's not just you doing that thing. It means a whole lot more. Uh, I've mentioned this before uh, when we were going through uh, just how to read the Bible and just context matters. Um, in Ezekiel, we see this quite a bit. Ezekiel does a lot of performance things to say, this is who I am. And so if you ever go to the store and you see the Ezekiel 4, 9 bread, you ever seen this? Remember the orange, got an orange package. Um, I've never tried it. Has anyone tried it? Has anyone ever had Ezekiel? Is it any good? Oh, okay, good. All right, well, here's where, here's where context matters. Here's what Ezekiel is supposed to do. These are, there's going to be some prophetic art that he's gonna be doing. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You're going to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side, okay? So he's, gonna, he's actually roped down for 390 days where he can't turn the other way, okay? He's, he's visually, physically performing something that the nation of Israel goes, well, that doesn't look fun. And he's like, yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> but this is you guys right now, okay? So that's, that's what's happening. Weigh out 20 shekels, for food to eat each day and eat it as, uh, as it sets times. Uh, also measure out a sixth of hin of water and drink it for set times. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. Ezekiel 4, 9 bread. I don't know what's going on, but don't eat. Right? There's con- That's right in the... In the- when, I, when we used this before, it was context. Context really matters uh, when you're picking the name of a, of a brand. The Lord said in this way, so here's what it is. This is what you're, you're performing in front of the people. In this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. 
All right, there's something that Ezekiel's saying to the nations of Israel uh, specifically. So that's that. Now let's get back to our text. When we get to Hosea, now in verse two. So again, here's that, here it is again. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, that is definitely prophet language. The Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman. All right, the, this we read from the NIV. If you have a different version, it's probably gonna be definitely not kid friendly. So I'm glad the nursery is gonna be opened up, not just because my son is screaming right now, uh, but because, because it, gets, it gets very graphic, this book does, okay? Uh, so go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. And here's why. So this is the art you're gonna be performing for all of nation of Israel to see, again, the Northern kingdom, and Judah's gonna see it too, but for like an adulterous wife, this land, this nation is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And when you think about this, it only took four kings for this to totally fall apart. Fall apart. It's Saul, David, Solomon, and then now this with Jeroboam. Doesn't take long. And it was never really great to begin with. And all those kings, we can list a whole list of, of sins and things they did wrong. So when we go back and we look at this, I just wanna highlight something briefly. Judah, again in the South, has the temple. But like I mentioned, because of Solomon, there's false temples all over this nation. And then they do nothing about it. They keep worshiping these false gods up in the North with Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Jeroboam in the north, he makes the capital of Samaria. And if you know the story of the Samaritan woman that the Jews hated the Samaritans, there's a big part of that that happens right here, that this starts to stir up some things. But he says, I don't have this temple in Jerusalem. I want my own temples. So he makes two temples. He makes one up in the north in, in Dan, and he makes one in the south, right in the border there in Bethel. And he makes these temples and he erects an image to represent Yahweh and he makes golden calves. Like the one thing you probably shouldn't use if you just read a little bit of your history, you don't make a golden calf. And that's it, so it's like, so this is why Yahweh's like, what is happening? I ju we just talked about this. And we see this idolatry. And so that's why, this is why Hosea is given a command to perform something that should really speak volumes to Israel. A quote here from the Af Africa Bible Commentary says this, the first command that Hosea receives from the Lord is shocking. Go take to yourself an adulterous wife. The reason given for this command is that Israel has departed from the Lord and is guilty of the vilest adultery. If you weren't here last week, it's fine. We talked about what is the bride of Christ and we see God, this image that God marries Israel. They have this covenant relationship together. And he says, you've, you've left me, you've, you've, you've committed adultery. And there are times where Yahweh is gonna say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna file for divorce. I'm gonna write a certificate of divorce to you because you have been so unfaithful. And now we can grasp a little bit of the context of what God's talking about. Thus, Hosea's personal life and marriage are linked to the larger story of Israel. That's that prophetic performance art. His situation provides a succinct introduction to the rest of the book. Israel has abandoned the Lord. 
but the Lord appeals to the nation to return to him and to know him. So now let's get to application. Because there is obvious application when we get to us and Jesus. I want to read a quick quote by a guy named Tim Chester. He's a pastor out in England, England, up in North Cambridge, I think is something like that. Australia. (laughs) I love those guys. He says this, and this is in his commentary and he's writing to his church. So you'll kind of hear his language as a pastor to his congregation. He says this, in the message of Hosea, we see the passion of God. We see the jealousy of God, the commitment of God, the heartbreak of God, the enthusiasm of God, the love of God. People often talk about what they feel about God. It happens all the time. Well, this is, this is what I think. This is what I feel. When I read that passage, let me tell you what I think about this. This happens all the time. Hosea tells us what God feels about us. It's the author's prayer. And he's talking about himself in an appropriate third person, very English, uh, British way of saying this. It's this author's prayer that as we explore the message of Hosea, the spirit of God would reveal God's passion so that he stirs our passion, our jealousy for God, our commitment to God, our heartbreak at sin, our enthusiasm to serve, our love for the lost. I've mentioned this before, and I'm gonna say it again. The Bible is not about how we, as image bearers of God, pursue God. It's about how God pursues us. Over and over, the Bible talks, if we were left to our own devices, we leave. There's nothing good in me that my heart is depraved and I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with righteousness. My best works are disgusting without the help of God, without the help of Christ. And so God vehemently pursues us and he comes after us, but it's always been this way. You go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter three, that when Adam and Eve, our first parents, first sin, this is what happens. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's what they had. And what did they do? As our first parents, they hid. They ran. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to them. Where are you? Where are you? I'm coming to you. He answered, this is Adam. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is the story of humanity. This is our story. This is Hosea's story. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. But for the next remainder of this book, Hosea is gonna show that God is saying that even though you commit adultery, even though you've abandoned me, and even though you continue to live a promiscuous life and seek other things, I'm staying committed because I said I would. I made a covenant with you. I'm not about to break it. But what's beautiful about this is that the story of Israel is the same story 
as the rest of us. But what I wanna caution us is that we, when we read this story, we are not Hosea. We are not Hosea in this story. We are not called by God to go do something and live a certain way. So, so oh man, yeah, woe is me. God's called me to, to do this thing and, and live with this family. I hate my family, but that's what I'm supposed to be with because that's what God's called me to do. You're not Hosea. You're Israel. You are the promiscuous woman who wants to just get away. I wanna get out from underneath you. I don't care about you. And then when the going gets rough, oh, hey, I'm sorry, I'm back. And then continually over and over and over. And over and over, we spit in God's face, but he loves us so much that he pursues us. And he pursues us so much that he takes on flesh and becomes one of us. There were so many passages that I could turn to to show this idea of we are Israel and the sense of that we, we are the promiscuous woman, that we constantly turn away from God and God always is pursuing us and only wants us to be with him. He only wants us to be faithful. We could look at the new covenant, which we're gonna talk about as we have communion. This new covenant that God enacts with his blood through his son. I wanna look at a familiar passage, probably the most popular passage in the Bible, and that's just John three sixteen but I'm gonna read through verse 21. This is the story. This is the human story of God, a loving God who pursues us. For God so loved the world. And I think Paul, one of our elders a couple weeks ago was talking about this word world in John, that it's not cosmos, it's not this necessarily this, this world globe, it's the yuck in the world, it's me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That's us when we are left alone. But then God pursues us and loves us. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so it may be seen plainly, plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. That's our story that God loved us so much that he takes on flesh, he becomes a human being, that he pursues us down to the nth degree and then goes to a cross willingly and dies and sheds his blood for a people, historically national Israel or even us, any person who just constantly says, yeah, God, I know that you did that for me, but this other thing kind of takes precedence right now. So in conclusion, I just have two, two gospel applications. The first one is, do you believe in Christ for salvation? And I know some of you weren't here last week, but we looked at the distinction between, uh, which there, there isn't one, so now I'm, now I'm just gonna get confusing, but Israel and true Israel and the church and the true church. 
that even in this time, as Hosea is doing this, that there's a remnant. There's, there's people in Israel that truly believe Yahweh and love and pursue Yahweh, but the majority of them don't. And this is also true of every church in the world, that there are people who sit in the pews because I go to this and I say this, I go to small group, I go to Bible study, I confess my sins, that I'm good. And it doesn't work that way because it's not about works. I have faith in Christ for salvation. Am I part of the true church? Am I part of true Israel? That's the first step. Because if we're not there, then we're just other nations. We're just other people. God loves us so much that he died for us. But secondly, and I think is more applicable to most of us, is do you believe in Christ every day? If you, if you know me, you know that I'm a, a big fan of, of Martin Luther, RIP. <laughs> why? Just, just leave it in there. Why does it, why does it come out? <laughs> Do you believe in Christ every day? But he's got this quote where he says, we have to continually beat the gospel into our heads. Continually. I have to continually be reminded of the gospel that Jesus loves me, that he pursues me, that he wants me to pursue him. He wants me to love him. He wants me to change, to be more like him, not more like the Pharisees, not more religious, but to love the father the way he does, to love the son. So what things capture our heart? What are the golden calves in my life that need to be totally destroyed? What things capture my heart in ways that Christ should? I think personally for me right now, confession time, it's, it's health. Not my health, the health of my kids, right? Just with everything going on in the world, it, it's kind of scary. And it becomes an idol. Safety, right? Where's the line? I'm gonna just well, I'm live in a bubble. I'm gonna have really awkward kids, but hey, they're alive, right? How do we do this? They might be awkward, but that's not my fault. What about financial security? Man, that's a God for so many of us. I just don't wanna to have to have an argument with my wife or my spouse one more time about money. Just don't wanna do this. We just made a little bit more money if, 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 if he just stopped doing that, if she just did this. Is that an idol? How about comfort, leisure, pleasure? So, kind of in a Tim Chester form, I wanna just say this, that this pastor's prayer. My prayer for us, all of us, myself included, is that through our study in Hosea, that sin would be exposed and then it would be executed in God's sight. And not just exposed, not just brought to light, but killed, mortified, put it in the grave, and we only can do that with Christ and the help of his spirit to kill these sins and these idols that we need to go back to the God that has pursued us so much. It's like, God, help me with this thing. And that the pursuit of God for your soul would become evident. I don't know where you're at. A lot of you, I don't know where you're at necessarily with your walk with God and walk with Christ, but I want you to know that he loves you 
and he's pursuing you. And even if you've said, I mean, I've already bowed the knee. I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm part of the true church, whatever you want to call it. I'm in there. Do you still know that he pursues you and loves you and still wants you to fight sin? Do you believe that every single day, every moment? Like we do every week here at Lower Town, we're going to have communion. Uh, and... Uh, if you weren't able to grab elements, feel free to, to I mean, the music's playing, to grab some that's in the back when you walk in. And all I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. Uh, you don't need to be a member of this church or any church, but if you say, yes, I do love Jesus, not all the time, because I'm not perfect, but I do. And I want to. And this is a beautiful way to be reminded of that new covenant that he shed with his blood, that he made with his blood, with us, with his bride, with his people to say, I love you so much that I'm gonna give you my, my blood represented by the juice that we consume, that washes away my sins and represented by this wafer that we're gonna break that represents his body that's broken for us. And he says, this is the new covenant in my body. This is the new covenant in my blood because I'm still married to a promiscuous woman. Me. And I get to every week, open up that stupid gross packet and I get to remember that Jesus loves me. Let me pray and then our musicians will make their way back up here. We'll sing uh, two songs together and uh, take communion uh, as you see fit or felt led. And uh, we will sing together uh, when you feel ready to and, and then we'll be dismissed. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this book of Hosea. I know that for a lot of us, it's an unfamiliar book. It's unfamiliar territory. And even just the first two verses, it's just wild. That what you asked your prophet to do, and yet as, as wild as that seems, that's exactly what you have done for the history of all humanity. That we constantly leave you and you constantly pursue us no matter how many times we do. Gotta pray that would be evident not just now, not just today, not as we just take these, these elements of communion, but for all time, that we would be drawn back to our, our bridegroom, drawn back to Christ who has pursued us so much that he's given his life for us. So God, I pray now that as we partake of these elements, that you'd be honored, that there would just be a sweet smelling, savory aroma that goes up to your, your space, that you would just be, filled with joy over your body, partaking of these elements together. So God, we pray these things in your son, Jesus, in his beautiful, precious name. Amen.